From New York City, the world famous Comedy Cellar presents Live from America Podcast. From America Podcast. With Noam Dorman and Hatem Gabber. Live from America Podcast. Where the top experts in the world and the best comics in the nation get together weekly to discuss today's issues as they cover news, culture, politics, comedy, and more. With an equal part of knowledge and comedy. And now, here are your hosts, Hatem Gabber and Noam Gorman. Hey, welcome to Live from America podcast. This is Hatem alongside me, Noam Dorman, as usual. My friend, the owner of the Comedy Cellar. Whoa. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. (laughs) I was like, oh, then he left. He doesn't like Noam. Hi, Noam. How are you? Hi, hi. I haven't seen you for a while. I've been planning to come Mondays. Uh, Noam plays uh, on Mondays live music. And I've been, uh, I wanted to come for a long time. It's such a relaxing, beautiful band that you have as well. Uh, He plays sometimes, I think one time via Zoom in the pandemic. And it was pretty cool. Remember that one? Yeah, yeah. So if you're around Monday, you should stop by the L3, another way to uh, watch uh, Noam perform. Kurt Metzger, uh, MMA award winner, should be here, but his flight got delayed, so he's stuck in traffic. If he can make it, he'll be here. If not, who needs him? You know, uh, he's going to get us in trouble anywhere. And our guest of honor, my good friend, MSNBC legal analyst, Daniel Savello. Hello. Thank you. It's so good to be back. And what a surprise that I was supposed to be on with the great Kurt Metzger, who I also love, too. What a terrific show. I hope he makes it. Um, I actually did that on purpose. That's how great I am, you know, because I know yes. you've, done, you've done his podcast and he really likes you. I mean, you're a very likable person. And Danny, congratulations. You want to share the news? I am a father for the second time as of two weeks ago. I now am the father of two girls. Uh, God help me. <laughs> Congratulations. Congratulations. And by the way, I did not know that Noam was in a band. Noam, I've known you for so long. We talk off air all the time, and I had no idea you were even in a band. Yeah, I have, I have a great band, actually. Uh, we play in the Ultra Monday Nights, and we get offered gigs all the time that we turn down. Actually, wow. you know how I, I don't like, you know, I, I love we, to trash we, Noam, but his band is really good. I mean, really good. Now, now, now respectfully, Hatem, uh, not the best plug, because I'm still left wondering... What kind of genre? Is he like an air supply cover band? Is it more run DMC? Like, what are we, no, what we, are we, we looking we, at? I don't know what Noam plays. You just we, said we it was relaxing. Band, we, have band, we have a band now that plays it. It's a, it's a derivative of a, of a bigger band I was in at one time that's playing um, like, like rock and R&B as well as some Spanish music and some, some um, like, uh, um, uh, what's the word? Like uh, almost novelty-ish instrumentals for fun. But um not novelty is the wrong word, but playing some instrumentals. But very, 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 very talented musicians. And yeah, then yeah. a lot of people, yeah. a lot of people, okay. So a lot of people have been in my band who passed through my band and now doing other things are like, for instance, Sasha Allen, who is now touring with the Rolling Stones. She's doing Sing Gimme Shelter with the Rolling Stones. If you see the new Stones, like the last five years, she's been the rape murder. She oh, wow. Then there's another girl, Amanda Brown, who's Adele's main lead singer now. Um, wow! The guy I play with Colin, who's still in the band. He was touring with Christina Aguilera, singing that famous duet she sings. I don't remember what it's called. Um, all of them, all, all they're all really, really uh, talented. Now, my question, Noam, is how many? If you're being honest, how many band members over the years have you fired? 
<laughs> very few, very few, because I, but I, because I, because I only hired very good ones. Well, well, here's here's, here's, here's a question. What well, the question should be, Danny? Because, but this is an inside thing. It's not Just how many ones. times you fired, how many times you have a fight. Because he used to have, so he used to play at the he used to own the lot before he sold it, and he used to play there. And there was this table that we call it non band fight table. He would just storm in every five minutes with a band member and just sit there and yell at each other. And then in a little bit, they make out and they go back, you know. But um, now you but said he's very, very it's a very close band. But when I when I said like it's like it's a feel good, it's just like it's so much talent. And it just like the way they play. Like, listen, they, they turned out, like you said, they turned out a lot of offers and stuff like that. They play for music. Like you really feel entertained. And that's something for me, something I miss in New York. I remember we used to go to a bar and somebody very talented, just playing for, for the sake of playing, you know what I'm saying? So that's how how you would you feel if you go to a night like this, you know? In now, Hatem, now Hatem, the name of this podcast is Live from America. So you have people all over America and beyond listening, and you just blurred right by the name of the bar. What was the name of the, the, the place where he plays? I kind of did that on purpose because it doesn't play that anymore. Oh, okay. All right. So <laughs> he, the sold, is he, he sold it. Right now you can watch him at the Olive Tree. He sold it. He, he had a club and he sold it. So, so well, that's why. Cap- cap- about- cafe yeah. Is that a secret or something like Well, it, by the way, now, so for folks listening, Cafe Wa is equally as legendary. Well, not quite as legendary as the Comedy Cellar, but it is right next door in the heart of the village. And when you said that, Hatem, my wife, that is her favorite bar. This is a true story. When she was in, in college at Penn State, would take a bus eight hours to go to Cafe Wa and listen to music and then get back on that bus at Port Authority and go eight hours back to State College. What year was that? What year was that? This would have been the year, I want to say 2008, 2009, around that. Yeah, well, you're looking at the guy who created that band and led it. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. That was my, that was my band. I I've I done a lot in cafe my life. Walk. A lot of people don't know that. I started the cafe. So the original cafe walk closed in 1968 and then it was pretty much forgotten. And I, then I started a club in, in 1988, uh, which was built around a house band that I created. And that became the cap, the band that became very, very famous, the, the house band at the cafe. Walk. And um, you're not the first person who's told me that Clint, Clint Watts, our friend, uh, yes, the great Clint Watts. Because he used to drive hours to come in to see the band at the Cafe Y. It was like a, it was like a thing. We we used to have lines out the door every night. Yeah, and I saw a lot of wow. No, a lot of a lot of, uh, and I think I think it's just as legendary back then because there was a lot of big stars would go and perform sometimes, you know, um, and hang out. Sometimes they just enjoy the music, you know. Yeah, a lot Jim of them. used to come. We had a lot of people used to come down. Yeah, yeah, yeah but then I, I think folks. Folks listening worldwide would know, want to know that this is these are two iconic places in probably the most iconic place to go out in the city. If you visit New York City, you got to go to the village, get out of Times yeah. Square, you know, go see the bull downtown for 10 seconds. But if you go out and about, you got to see the village. And, you know, I probably have never even told Noam this. My go to uh, for an easy night out, folks, if you're in New York, I like to go now. Now, is, when I say this, Noam's going to tell me this restaurant is probably uh, not so great. But there's an Ethiopian restaurant right across the street that I like to go to. Oh, get a little it's so dinner, good. Yeah. And then I come across with my friends, even if we, we don't necessarily go to a show because it's just packed at the cellar. But my favorite thing, and it's a secret, I've never told you guys this. I'm, I'm revealing this for the first time. I like to go to the back bar and get a drink. 
just because you never know who you're going to see at that back bar. Now, I hope I'm not revealing uh, any any industry secret, but the coolest place in town, in my opinion, is the back bar at the Olive Tree upstairs from the Comedy Cellar. Yeah, and that's usual because I'm there, like, hanging. <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> By the way, I, that's correct. I, I appreciate all the kind words. We're not gonna, this is not the topic of the thing, but I, I will say that my, the, um, the Café Wa as, like, in a, an accomplishment of... of of mine in terms of my life. I, something I was way more, took a lot more pride of uh, creatorship, if that's the word, than uh, um, the comedy seller. Mostly because the the comedy seller, in the end, you know, the jokes are written by the comedians. That's their talent that I'm I'm just presenting them. But in the why I was um, actually the the force behind the 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 music there. So that was a, a bigger thing for me. And we, and we started from zero. Like, I mean, the first couple of nights, not first couple of nights, first couple of months at the Wah, We'd have 10 people, 15 people, 20 people. Like, you remember, Hanson, I don't know if you were there. You weren't even there at the beginning. I mean, it was it was unbelievable. And we just kept at it. And after a year, we started to have a line on the weekends. And then after like three years, we had a line seven nights a week or five nights a week. And then I had some other bands in the nights, but five nights a week for our band. And that continued for 20 years. Yeah. And it's, it was it was kind of very nice and very challenging as well when you as a worker when you work there is like you have the line for the comedy cell you line for cafe one and sometimes the shows are the same so you have a, a line across the street that's standing in front of nothing just a line and people walking by it's like what the fuck is this line for like the, and they you know you have to navigate all but again and then we're gonna move on to the topic is like my point is like when I said feel good, that band, you know, when you have good material, when you really work for the entertainment, not for the business, because I, I know a lot of club owners and a lot of them are successful, but production, when it takes, when you actually care about the art itself, you're going to have a good result. When you have good band, when you have good performance, you're going to have. So, what, so, so what's the real point we're getting at here? Thank God my mother could not legally abort me in 1962 if she wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> I never do that. <laughs> no, no, somebody, that. Somebody, somebody left a, 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 it was so funny. They said, I'm so angry at Noam at the last um, uh, episode about abortion. He should be very happy. You know how many little gnomes we would have had running around if it wasn't for a push. <laughs> this is this is how stupid people are. I said over and over that I'm pro-choice. I said it over and over, but people cannot separate that from you know saying that some arguments don't hold water. It's like it's not that's two different things anyway. So um, here's what I think uh, for today. Uh, we have the greatest legal analyst in the world right here, oh, uh, and he, he put on? things very simply. Uh, so. I want to discuss like four the, the latest four trials that's you know all over the media yes. a little bit maybe ten minutes each you know um, so um, any guess of the four trials let's start with Maxwell you know Jeffrey Epstein um, Kerfin or whatever uh, and I was the first one to say it a year ago when they first captured that Maxwell did not kill herself so now we now now we end record she did not kill herself so yeah, he's, that's that is true and you are right yeah. You're the first one to say she was not going to. She didn't kill herself. That it's a joke that she that they're gonna make her kill herself and say she didn't kill. Anyway, right, move on, move on, move on. Yeah, if yeah, <laughs> if, if if you don't get it, it's just too late. So no, yeah, so, so what's the update on that, Danny? Why don't you tell so, it in yeah, a, tell it in Arabic the way you thought of it, and then we can maybe it'll, go, ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Actually, this is a number one joke in iTunes right now. So okay, go ahead, go ahead, Danny, go ahead. Okay, so uh, Ghislaine Maxwell is probably the most vexing case going right now, the last four or five, because we've had 
for someone like me, it's been a legal bonanza for the last you know month or so. It's all been the kinds of cases that I really enjoy analyzing. To me, I would take, you know, the, the uh, analysis of whether a police use of force is lawful is something finite. I think it's knowable. You can research it. If for me, you know, discussing whether or not you have to respond to a congressional subpoena when no one seems to know the answer is a much more nebulous discussion. This is, this is my wheelhouse. So yeah. when you have Kyle Rittenhouse, you've got um, Kim Potter, you've got all these trials, and you have Ghislaine Maxwell, which is a straight up, essentially, man act. Um, uh, it's basically a sex crimes case. And what's really, uh, it, the, the Maxwell case to me is probably the most difficult to handicap, to predict, because number one, it's in federal court uh, and you don't have cameras and you, they, reporters aren't even allowed to take in computers. They can't live tweet, they can't do anything. So you're really sort of left with their impression of how witnesses performed. That being said, uh, Maxwell is essentially charged with uh, I think four to six counts, but they're all essentially violations of the Mann Act. Using, you know, transporting a minor, uh, coercing a minor, enticing a minor uh, to cross state lines to participate in unlawful sex acts. So uh, the the challenge here, you know, if you read the indictment, it's available online. It's inter- an interesting read because the government essentially alleges that Maxwell befriended these girls, took them shopping. Um, uh, talk to them about sex. And then it also alleges that she participated in the sex. But I have to tell you that if all the government has is befriending and taking people shopping, I don't know that that rises to the level of a man, a man act violation. On the other hand, these accusers have marched in, pointed their finger at Maxwell and said, yeah, she was there. She participated under cross-examination. Defense counsel exploits the fact that as you have to, as a defense attorney, it's a very difficult thing in a sex case. I've had to do it where you have to challenge these uh, accusers on their memory, their drug use, the fact that they have not mentioned Maxwell in the past. Uh, but this is a, you know, these crimes alleged could date back to the mid 90s and the very beginning of the 2000s. So everyone's memories are going to be hazy. And including they were kids Maxwell's. Too. What's that? And they and were they children. Were and children's memories are, uh, there's all kinds of science, uh, yeah. scientific literature on, the, uh, on children's memories. But Daniel, why is this, this folks- not taking as much media as the rest of I'm like to, like like you, this is the most you know interesting because it's, it's it's a crime over years and years, you know. And can I ask a question? When you say how old are these girls? When at when the time, happened? I think 16, 17. Okay, so this is around. this is fascinating as a as you know, you know, like a pet peeve of mine. So and I don't and I think you're right. I did not hear one expert talk about all the science on the sketchy memories of 16 year olds when Kavanaugh was up against it. Not one time, not one time did I hear a national commentator mention that. But go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, So what you have, you know, what you the challenge here, by the way, the challenge in any sex case, especially against minors, is that they're usually they're usually committed in private. So it's really the minor's testimony against the defendant. But here. Apparently, you had people around all the time. And the defense's theme is essentially what I call the empty chair defense. Look for this to favor prom- feel, uh, feature prominently in their closing, that the empty chair is Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, the, the person they really wanted to get was Jeffrey Epstein. They had him, and then they lost him. You know, Depending on what you believe, he either they killed, killed himself. Some people, think, some people think it was something more nefarious. That, that's, my joke. Way, that's why my joke is funny, Noam, because she didn't kill herself. I'm just gonna so, <laughs> so Epstein, so Epstein is not here. Epstein did all these terrible things. 
They will say Maxwell was his confidant. She worked for him, but don't hold her responsible. In fact, at the opening, her defense counsel said since Adam and Eve, uh, men have, have done terrible things and women have been blamed for them. And, you know, at the time that drew an audible gasp from spectators in the courtroom, and I get why, but at the same time, I wonder if that doesn't ring true with some members of the jury because the defense team's going to connect that back up in their closing and try as they try as hard as they can to foist all of this bad, uh, this cruel, awful, tragic behavior onto Jeffrey Epstein and uh, say that their client was not responsible. And just as a as a little epilogue to my my summary here, look, look. you know, a lot of time people ask me that uh, you know they say, well, weren't there so many more victims? And I to that I say, yeah, I think there were, but don't forget the federal government loves to win. They've got an over ninety percent conviction rate, so they cherry pick only the very best witnesses who are not going to get lambasted on cross examination. And I have to think I don't know, but I have to think there were complainants and accusers who would have wanted to be a part of this case, who uh, were may have not passed the muster that the government uh, wanted for its witnesses to testify against Maxwell. But uh, boiling it down, it all comes in my mind down to this. If the jury thinks all Maxwell did was befriend these girls uh, and take them shopping, she could get acquitted. But if, as the government alleges, she was much more involved, she, uh, you know, she was involved in sexually assaulting them, if they find these accusers credible, then I think they will convict Maxwell. Well, are they married? They're not married, right? They were never married. No, they were never married. She she actually, uh, reportedly, she is currently married or maybe getting a divorce. No. Uh, but there's virtually nothing out there about her current husband, who is, I think, a good decade younger than her. But So, um, so yeah. the Epstein documentary. Wait, wait, wait. I, mean, a question. I haven't followed it at all, so you can see is, is does she claim that she didn't know what he was doing with these young girls? We may never know what she claims because she's probably not going to take the stand. So she doesn't really have a narrative out there the way defendants who take the stand do. Her defense team are, is going to argue that the most the prosecution has shown is that she worked with Epstein. She worked for Epstein. She managed his properties. She may have been on the airplane with these girls, but that all those things don't add up to her participating in the sexual assault. And then they'll probably argue that as to the sexual assault, there is insufficient evidence because, for example, one of the accusers they cross-examined and she had to admit on the stand that in her prior deposition on her case against Epstein, she never mentioned Maxwell. In her, in her prior, uh, in a prior complaint, I believe it was, criminal complaint, she also did not mention Maxwell. So uh, I, I'm paraphrasing and I may have a couple, I mean, I, I may have the documents wrong, but the bottom line is in prior complaints and opportunities to complain about Maxwell, she did not. Now, you know, first I'll tell you, it is incredibly powerful. Uh, I almost think the mere fact of pointing out the defendant in the courtroom uh, is, is enough to overcome issues with credibility. I've had it happen to me with my cases, but you, know, you can see how done the right way and done delicately, uh, a defense attorney can really raise some reasonable doubt if uh, one of these accusers had a full opportunity, say, five, 10 years ago to list all the bad people who had done things to her associated with Epstein and didn't mention Maxwell. And that's a pretty significant omission. So let me ask you this. Uh, the question is uh, with the documentary, the Netflix documentary is very popular. It was top 10 at some point about Epstein and Maxwell. When people already watch this, they already have an idea about 
Maxwell. Would that can the the defense the defense lawyers use that as like oh these are all things that you see in TV, but it didn't really happen. Like would that work against um, convicting her? Well, when you have a movie, yes or no. First, a- first, if any jurors have strong feelings about that Netflix documentary or anything they've seen. They're not going to get seated as jurors unless they're what we call stealth jurors, people who are lying about what they've seen and what they believe yeah. just to get on the jury in order to convict. I haven't had much experience with stealth jurors. I, you know, I'm sure they exist. I, I just I don't know that they do. But the um, but in this case, you've got a situation where you've got a ton of pretrial publicity. In fact, one could say that arguably uh, there's so much pretrial publicity now in a way that there never was. It's interesting. The case on pretrial publicity is a case called Shepard v. Maxwell, believe it or not. Yeah. And it actually involved, the, it was the genesis of the case for the, uh, the one-armed man in The Fugitive, the movie The Fugitive. That was yeah. essentially the loosely based story uh, of that defendant, but which I was, is I was several kinda, decades ago. I was kind of more asking about, you know, the part where, where you mentioned that maybe they don't want some witnesses to be there. In this, mo- in this documentary, there is some girls that have been through a lot in that documentary and they're not in the court. So, right. so it can be, you know, the, the defense can be like, listen, there's some girls that, you know, we question, like you said, the federal, uh, you know, prosecutor will pick a ch- uh, like cherry pick who is, the, who is the witness. But in the movie, we saw yeah. a lot of witnesses that are not in the court and some of them been through a lot. So you can question the right. members, you can. So if you go back to the original non-prosecution agreement that Jeffrey Epstein entered into back in 2007, I don't want to take anything away from his attorneys. It's the most amazing piece of negotiation I've ever seen. It makes me feel, uh, uh, you know, it makes me doubt my own skills uh, when I see how relentlessly they negotiated the sweetheart deal of a lifetime uh, with, uh, with Jeffrey Epstein in 2007. But if you read the book Filthy Rich, what that details is that Police officers back then talked to many potential victims, but they concluded that they were not credible. Why? Because they had drug issues, because they had worked as prostitutes in the past, yeah. allegedly or reportedly. Uh, they had other other issues. And as sad as that is, I mean, the reality is Jeffrey Epstein probably uh, preyed upon people with sketchy backgrounds for that very reason. He wasn't going to go after someone at the cotillion. He wasn't going to go after somebody at the country club. Uh, he was going to go after somebody who was, you know, from uh, as many do when they groom victims uh, from a broken home. Uh, although I do know one of the alleged victims was at Interlochen, which is you know, a very you know prestigious who gave him music that deal? camp up in. What's that? You know who gave him that deal? Uh, it was the um, Alex the attorney for. Yeah, that's right. That's who it was. Yeah, that's right. It's crazy. Right? Attorney then for Flor- Southern District of Florida. Yeah. Right. I know it's pretty crazy. So. Uh, so the bottom, I mean, the rea- ugly reality that that people don't seem to want to talk about is that, yeah, pol- law enforcement makes decisions based on the credibility of witnesses, which is why, you know, crimes against prostitutes don't get prosecuted the same with the same vigor as crimes against, I don't know, you know, the uh, the first lady or the president of the PTA or you know what, what have you. No, I'm you the richest one here. Have you been to the island? <laughs> just no, I've not been to the island. No, I've never even been invited. For God's sake. <laughs> so, how, how much of like influence could we like? Do you think? Do you do you as a person, not as a lawyer, Danny? Do you feel like there's some really big names that can influence stuff like that? 
that were involved in that island thing? First, I like that your question separates me as a person from me as a lawyer. Yeah, because uh, I see, I see who you're really human. <laughs> no, but uh, <laughs> geez. So, uh, so you say, I'm sorry, your, your question again, I already lost it, throwing out my joke. Yeah, what, what, as, a, as a person, when you look at it from that, because as a lawyer, you're going to look at facts, you know, but when you, when you from the outside, you say, oh, my God, there's a lot of like heavy hitters involved in this case. This could be right. very influenced. You know, what's interesting is that the um, this case has not involved a lot of name dropping, at least not the way I thought it would. And so you may not end up hearing anything about Bill Clinton or whoever, Donald Trump or all the other people who have been loosely associated with Epstein. Um, Prince and, Andrew. Uh, you know, Prince Andrew, of course, is probably the biggest name on that list. Uh, yeah. But, you know, again, they all, I think, deny everything. But what's What's really strange is that this case has not really raised those people's names at all. The prosecution has avoided it, and so too has uh, the defense from what I can see. And so I wonder if the jury, that hurts the prosecution because the jury has heard all this stuff about Epstein, and now they're getting this very narrow case about uh, this nobody who they've never heard of before, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, who apparently aided Epstein, but there's no mention of all these other uh, heavy hitters that were apparently involved. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, well, to, yeah. To, to be fair, we, we don't know. At least I we, we don't know stuff. that these heavy hitters were. Well, Prince Andrew was actually accused of being involved with the underage girls, right? But I don't think Clinton and Trump were. Well, in in the in the book and in the documentary, the people that worked there saw uh, you know witness uh, Bill Clinton going there. And there was pictures of him and uh, Trump, but Trump said he never, you know, he know him, but not that well. That's right. It's all alleged. And it's really, you know, there's no, really no hard evidence of any of it. Just really just words in the breeze. Yeah. If Instagram only existed back then, huh? Absolutely. Well, then again, maybe people wouldn't be so daring uh, as if, if Instagram existed or camera phones. I mean, I know that, you know, I behaved much more poorly in high school and college because nobody had a camera back yeah. then. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, um, so what, what you think, you think that she might not get a, a quit? No, I think, you know, if I'm playing the odds, she's in federal court, the federal government, you know, they, they hit people with overkill on the evidence. I think it's likely, uh, that there's just so much evidence against Jeffrey Epstein and evidence that she was associated with them, that even if they fall short on showing, uh, that she was directly involved in these crimes, I think she's just so she's so much got the stink of Jeffrey Epstein on her that there's a good chance the jury could convict just based on that. They won't see her as very sympathetic and she will not testify. At least I don't think so. I think this is one, you know, we're in an era the last month or two where you'll never see this many high profile defendants testify again in your life. This is a very strange um, situation. Uh, it's, un it's unique to have this many testify at all. So this is one that should not take the stand. She's got credibility issues. She's been charged separately with perjury. So the idea of her taking the stand is really not a good idea. So, so Danny, this is an interesting thing. So my, my friend, Harry Anton uh, from CNN, you know who he is? Is a data journalist on CNN. He, um, yeah. He's also, a, he's, a, he's a huge sports fan. And he always tells me how um, teams uh, don't try on fourth down enough, that the, the numbers are clear that statistically they, they should try more on fourth down than they do. They punt. And uh, one of the reasons is because the, it's, 
the it's it's easier to defend inaction than action. And coaches, if you if you go and fourth down and you and you don't make it, your coach has his fingerprints all over it. So coaches become a little shy about doing it. Is it possible that there's a similar phenomenon going on in criminal trials where lawyers are afraid to put their their defendants on the stand, but actually they should go on fourth down? Noam, I am so glad you asked that because I, if nothing else, the past couple of months of defendants taking the stand in high profile cases and testifying, and in the case of Rittenhouse, uh, you know, it working for him, I wonder if the old adage of never let your client take the stand is something that has just endured for hundreds of years, hundreds of years. And I got to tell you, I don't think, I don't think I've ever called my client to the stand in a major, you know, felony federal trial uh, ever. And I have to admit that at least 30% of that choice is the fear of what every lawyer in the community would say if they knew that I called my client to the stand and not based on any empirical evidence. Because first of all, I almost never see it happen. But second of all, every I mean, anyone would tell you that uh, in the community, I, I'm not even saying that I've compromised my clients based on that. Anyone would give you the advice that, you know, having your client take the stand is just too big a risk. And I've long wondered if that's just a myth, if that's just something that that people have been saying forever, because as you say, and the key is lawyers, like football coaches, are risk averse. That's why we make terrible business people. We're, uh, we take the least dangerous, least criticizable Listen, the bottom line is lawyers don't want to get in trouble with the Bar Association. They don't want to get in trouble with the Board of Ethics. We don't want no trouble. And if you don't want no trouble, you take the most risk averse decision every time. And I have to wonder after all these years if that isn't compromising the client sometime, because I got to tell you, I think there's nobody the jury wants to hear from more than the client. When I think of, you know, I think the Derek Chauvin case, uh, I wonder why they didn't call that client to the stand. I mean, what else did you possibly have to lose? And police officers are the best witnesses because they testify every day in court. They're professionals. Uh, that's an example of a case I thought they could have called their clients to the stand. But at the same time, I know if they had called him, oh, those lawyers would have been lambasted for calling him. And, and I wonder if that, it's not time to rethink uh, that, that, that old myth. Would, would you call O.J. Simpson? No, because OJ Simpson, <laughs> no, you do not. By the way, that was a, the correct call. See, and I'll tell you what else. I think that's how the rule started. <laughs> so, so, but it is a case by case analysis. So, for example, I don't think uh, Ghislaine Maxwell would be a good witness. Number one, she's got perjury issues. But number two, she also, I mean, her personality, I don't know her, but as someone who's been a lifelong socialite, she's going to come off probably as very entitled. She'll probably spar with the prosecutor. She'll, uh, I don't think she would acquit herself very well. I think also uh, Jussie Smollett did not do very well. I have a suspicion that the Jussie Smollett testifying was a case of the client saying, here's how I'm running my own case. This is what I'm going to do and taking over. And, and maybe his lawyer's just saying, well, he's the client. He gets well, to do whatever well, he wants. One, that was the next one that I, I wanted to go to, Jussie Smollett. So let's go for him. Let's do no, it. Just, just, just to say, with, with Chauvin, I, I really agree with you. In, unless... There was something that, you know, that, that he was afraid was going to come out. Um, 
for him to go up there and say, listen, this is the way I was trained. They always told me this. Everybody look at look at the picture in the manual. It's a picture of a cop with his knee and it says non-lethal force. I, I didn't wake up wanting to kill somebody. I, they told me excited delirium, whatever it is. They told me to, that, that I can't believe what the guy says because he could come up like I just doing what they told me. And that this, they told me the science wasn't reliable. And that's like. You know, that would be as a juror, like, yeah, you do I want to put this guy in jail for the rest of his life? They told him all this stuff and they really did tell him all that stuff, you know? Yeah. And it would have humanized him. Yeah. And by the way, here's one little fact he could have gotten out that I don't think anyone else could have disputed is, hey, look, I know what it looks like, but I got to tell you, I don't think I had more than three pounds of, of my weight on his on his back. I know what it looks like. Oh, very good. How are they going to dispute that? How are they going to how are they going to I mean, they're going to call it an expert in physiology to say, no, I can tell he's got all his weight there. I mean, I think, you know, look, I hate second guessing defense teams because, look, the risk averse decision is not to put your client on the stand. But a police officer, I got to tell you something. I've cross examined a billion of them. They get practice every week. They have usually have a day that they do nothing but testify on their cases. They know to look at the jury to try and connect with them. And keep in mind, instead, all the jury saw was this masked face with just these kind of you know, very intense eyes. I mean, he looked like a, you know, he looked like a, a prisoner sitting there. Yeah. Very, really interesting stuff. Go ahead. Patan. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we move into uh, Jesse Smollett. He said, he said, it's a, it's a, it's a client that's controlling the team, the defense. Yeah, it's like, this is what it yeah. He wanted to make it like a so, show. You think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think here's the thing. I've, I've spent a lot of time around people charged with crimes. And there are many different people who get charged with crimes, different personalities. And there is a kind of person who is absolutely certain that everything has to be done their way. They have an answer for everything. I suspect, and I don't know, that Jesse Smollett might have been the kind of client that comes into the meeting and they say, well, they've got video of you driving around. We're driving around looking for something to eat. Well, they got video of you with these two brothers. Yeah, was, they were training me. And I suspect he probably had an answer for every allegation. And, you know, all I can say is, is that it's really uh, paradoxical to me that the client who comes in and says, I'm running the show, I know what to do, I got this. When that same thought process landed you in my office and in court <laughs> to begin with, but they don't, that is never a thought in, in their mind. There's a special kind of person that doesn't think about that. So, uh, so Jesse Smollett, I suspect, came in and he, when he paid his lawyer fees, it was so that he could run the show and dictate how the case would go. I don't know that I would have called Jesse Smollett as a client because, uh, it, I, you know, I wouldn't have chosen to, but he has an absolute. But he's a likable right. actor, you know, have that charisma thing. He can act, you know. So, yes, but here's the thing. Yes, he can act, but he broke the cardinal rule. Of, uh, of testifying, which is he got into a, a, a snarky uh, back and forth with the prosecutor. You can never do that. Not because prosecutors or lawyers are smart, smarter, we're not, but the rules of evidence are slanted against the, uh, the, the witness. You'll never win an argument uh, with the lawyer. Just like when you're a hitter in baseball, you don't beat the pitcher by throwing the ball back to the pitcher harder than the pitcher. You beat the pitcher by hitting a home run and the rules are slanted against you. If you're the best in the business, you'll succeed, what, three out of 10 times. So uh, you never argue with the prosecutor in, in cross-examination. And he did that and he it came off poorly. He didn't look. Why, why did he go to trial at all? Because I, 
if, if you're asking my theory is that he uh, came into his lawyers and he said, probably said, I didn't do any of this. We're going to trial. I won't accept any plea. I won't accept. I won't pay them any money. We're going to go to trial and we're going to win. And a lot of times you'll have a client who is much more rah-rah about going to trial than the lawyers are. The lawyers are not very rah-rah about it. We're not very thrilled. And we're frankly, you know, we don't have the optimism the client always does. So, so, so get- wait, 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 I, I really don't think about it. Is he going to go to jail now, do you think? Yeah, that was my question. So, and, I, and I, and let, let, say, wait, two part, is he going to go to jail? And was he offered a plea which would have kept him out of jail? That's my question. The, the plea offer, I don't know about. But the, his potential sentence, I believe, is a max of three years. But I think that's five. I think they're merging all the counts. So I think each felony has a potential three-year sentence. If they were consecutive, it, it would be uh, three times five. That's 15. I don't think anyone's, I don't think they're going to do that in this jurisdiction, but I tend to believe that he will get jail time. Most legal analysts say that he'll get probation. I don't believe that. I believe if you're a judge and you have a wit, a, uh, uh, a defendant who is accused of lying and then gets on the stand and technically, if the jury didn't believe him, lied on the stand. I mean, you know, by definition, we don't punish for perjury when a defendant gets convicted after he testifies, but essentially, I mean, the jury didn't believe him. It's a judicial determination that he wasn't telling the truth. It's never prosecuted. But a judge is going to also take into account that he got on the stand, told the same cockamamie story, and he went to trial. There's a trial tax in America. You know, you get a better deal if you plead than if you go to trial and waste all the resources of the government. And so for that reason, I think uh, this judge, and probably the most important reason, this judge is going to have this defendant standing in front of him. And if he gives him a probation-only sentence, He's, he's going to be accused of showing favoritism to famous people. And you don't want to be that judge. You want to be even-handed. He, and he if wasn't, anything, this is someone... He wasn't charged at all in the beginning from what I remember. How did it turn to He was trial? charged by the local prosecutor. And then it was dropped. And yeah, then they got dropped, a special... Yeah. The attorney general... Got, it was basically like an independent prosecutor came in and did indict him. So it was a very controversial uh, charging, uncharging, and then recharging. Uh, so uh, just for the record, everything that he said was a lie, except that they were wearing mega hats, right? That was, that's true, that part. <laughs> well, I guess it's true. He was assaulted. I mean, in a sense, you know, and I, you know, it's funny about that trial. It didn't really come out. Ultimately, I think the defense's theory of the case is, I think they had essentially conceded that the brothers that he knew assaulted him, but they never explained, they never explained what, you know, that, why that was their theory. I mean, why did these guys that he paid money to to train him suddenly decide that he needed to get beaten up. It doesn't, you know, their theory didn't make sense. And here's the thing. You can do really one of two things when you're on defense. You can either point at the prosecution and say they haven't proved their case. And if you have if you have a bad case, sometimes that's all you can do. But I think more effective is to have your own theory of the case. And their theory, the defense's theory of the case here was always muddled. It never made sense. In other words, I are you saying your perception is so off you thought, Two white guys with MAGA hats attacked you, but now you just say they're light skinned. And by the way, you know, the, these two brothers, they were not light skinned. Like there's, yeah. you never explained why, as far as I know, he never explained why he got his identification so god awful wrong. Did you recognize them? These are guys that train you. you didn't re- even if they were in masks, you recognize nothing. And you, why did you think they were white? Why did you think they have MAGA hats? I, I never got a satisfactory explanation for that. And I suspect neither did the jury. I mean, I don't I don't like to see people go to jail unless I really think they they woke up with a, you know, 
with really violent intent towards others. I know there's some exceptions, um, you know, Madoff belong to jail, but, but I, I think you're right that the, the system can't just let somebody like this walk. Uh, yeah. Got to give him something. On the other hand, he's clearly all, everything we're saying is so inexplicable that he's not, he can't be right in the head. Like there's something not right with this guy. And it feels bad to put somebody like that in jail. Who's a victim of his own, seems like mental illness to me. I, no, I, no, I know, no one is I know right you can't plead insanity for, you can't plead insanity so easily, but nevertheless, in real life, this guy's not, this guy doesn't have his head together. Right. I mean, it's, it's bad. But, for well, yeah. I yeah. mean, Go ahead, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear you. I mean, it, it's funny in a sense. It's is it a victimless crime? Probably not, because you could say that the city of Chicago spent a lot of money uh, investigating, but he is the victim. So is it a victimless crime if he chooses to not be that he's not a victim? Although he kind of claimed victimhood when he was on the stand. He said, look, I got beaten up. I'm, I'm really hurt. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I hear you. I think that still a judge is going to have a famous person in Chicago, which is kind of can, can have a lot of blue collar sentiment in Chicago. They don't have it's not L.A. and it's not New York. They don't have as much as many famous people as we do. So I could see a judge saying, you know, look at this, Mr. Big Shot. He thinks he's uh, can come into our city and uh, and manipulate our law enforcement. I really suspect he's going to get something on the order of like six months, maybe a year. Um and load him up with probation. But, uh, you know, the max, I don't think so. But I also don't think he's going to get a straight probation sentence either. So, and, and part of the reason I'm, I'm anti-prison, and, and I don't know much about this, is that I feel like terrible things happen to people in prison, which are just cannot be considered constitutional. Uh, and and they're, predict- they're so predictable that I, that I think there's just something wrong unacceptable about that like you put somebody in prison yeah, yeah if, he, if he spent three six months in prison and could be kept safe and just but essentially did his time and had to think about what he did and was punished as it were i'd be okay with that but if he's gonna get beaten up or or god forbid like you know that's not okay that's not he didn't do anything to deserve that and and i'm afraid that's yeah. what can happen but that's that's the problem with the system not with him getting there because there's a lot of people yes, yes that's the problem with the system yeah that's already but you then you said that he didn't uh, we didn't know why he, they beat him up. His theory of the case was essentially, it, it left a lot of unanswered questions for me, but his theory of the case was that, no, I really was the victim of an assault. These guys really did beat me up. Uh, and uh, when I, when I said they were, for example, when I said they were white before I meant pale. <laughs> I mean, right. I don't know that. that I, I, I do, by I, the way, I mean, these gentlemen that, that, that beat him up, they're not pale. There's nothing. Yeah. I mean, you're not, you're not getting any closer to to describing them when you say, oh, no, they're not white. They're pale. I don't really get it. It's it. I, and I don't think the jury bought it either. Obviously, they you know, like when a movie like Bonfire of the Vanities comes out and people say it's just too over the top. It's unbelievable. Nothing like that could ever really happen. And then you all of a sudden these, a real life story like this comes out and it's just so over the top and it's all true. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's, ahead, it's unbelievable. But- yeah, when he said that the you know the two guys didn't know why they beat him up, you know, I I believe that they beat him up because I don't even know him and I want to beat him up. Like so, is like <laughs> the, the, these these two guys? Uh, maybe he uh, didn't pay them. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, oh, yeah, maybe. Never know. But but Never I mean, know. like he, he, no, he I, I think believe, he needs to go to jail. I, can, I cannot believe that we're two cases in 
we haven't hit any of the gun cases, which I think is Gnome's sweet spot. Like that is that is Gnome's I'm favorite. I'm, I'm not trying point. to make him happy here. I'm not trying Let's to go. make him happy. I, I'm, by the way, Dan, you know, I'm, I'm having a, um, I'm changing a little bit. Like I, I'm not taking the same deep dives. I, I'm just losing my mojo on all this. Of course you are. What are you talking about? You're is it, is it, Noam, is it because Trump is no longer in office? Um, It, it could be indirectly be, because of that, because it's just kind of like out of the, the day-to-day routine of like jumping in every day and, and, right. and that stuff. Also, like when I, I did a deep dive on this Chauvin thing and I, and I, I didn't do it. And I, and I found these studies and it was all this kind of stuff out there that nobody was talking about. And I'm like, well, I guess, I guess I'm not right about that. I, sp- I spoke to um, Laura Bazelon about it. And, and, and I just kind of lost confidence in my own ability here. Like when enough people tell me uh, I, I got nothing, I'm like, I guess, I guess I'm, I guess I'm not, seeing these things correctly i don't know no i can tell you you send me emails with some of your research from time to time and you are spot on i mean i gotta tell you I, Wait, for, Danny, so the audience very, hears it that's that's he very is, surprising spot on you read his emails spot on. thank you, thank you email? <laughs> <laughs> i never do <laughs> yeah but uh so, so like on, and, and also it becomes you know it's just like we had this abortion thing last week and i was you know being uh I wouldn't say devil's advocate. I was saying what I really think about all of it. And, and people still, and the listener still hears it as me being pro-life or something like that. So like, like on the Chauvin thing, I, I, I like fatigued of being somehow going to be associated with somebody who's like, okay, with police brutality or, or, or any of these horrible things, which is, as you know, is not the case, but um, the average listeners, including very smart people, I guess they're not able to separate those things. And I just kind of got fatigued. Of I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think a lot of people do understand where you're coming from. They all, the one thing is like, you always argue for both sides, you know, um, which, which common sense. Yeah. You, you know, your question is like, you said something great last, last uh, episode when like the other side never answers a simple question of the, the other side. You know, no sides answer the question of the other side, the hard question, which is true. I'll t- they do. I'll tell you, I'll tell Danny an argument I made. Nobody gets to the gun case. We have time, right? I made an argument last week that, that I kind of rather liked about abortion because the, the, the woman, she was a, a, what was she, a minister or? A reverend. Reverend. I don't know the difference. She was a reverend and um, uh, also a uh, lawyer and, uh, you know, a civil rights lawyer. Yeah. Civil rights lawyer. And, um, she said, well, you know, it's a, it's a women's, uh, women should decide this essentially because it's a woman's body. And, you know, why should anybody but a woman decide with, and it occurred to me and I said, well, you know, since when have we decided that the person most impacted by something is the most objective on an issue? It's kind of like a NIMBY thing. Um, maybe abortion is the ultimate NIMBY issue. Like we don't, when, when the people in border towns complain about immigration, we don't say, well, I guess we should stop immigrating. They must know, like we say, well, yeah, they're so close to it that they're not seeing the big picture. They're not able to put the immigrants' interests where they belong because they're so personally impacted by it. Well, you know, I shouldn't have said that, you know, but um, it is an interesting argument to me. It's like well, it, people always just say without thought, well, of course, we all know women are much more impacted by abortion. But couldn't that mean that also means that they're not able to see it as uh, objectively? Like, like there's, it's 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 the only time. I mean, I'm repeating myself, right? It's the only argument I can really think of where it's completely just assumed that if they're very close to it, they must be more 
objective. But I think a better argument in that that sense was when he said in other states, women actually are more against. Um, well, w- women don't poll that differently than men on abortion. And and for sure, I said if 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 there was a state where all of a sudden women were polling in favor of uh, were, were polling against abortion, if they if they told me that. 70% of women in Mississippi were pro-life, then the left would immediately drop that argument about women should decide. It's, it's, not, a, it's not actually a sincere argument. Nevertheless, it is interesting to me to even begin to think about like, what does it mean? Is that argument, does it really hold water that women should decide this because they're so close to it? That's a very, and people get really upset if you think about that, but I don't know. Well, it's an interesting thing because because the Supreme Court has said that abortion is uh, a fundamental right that flows from privacy, it is technically a right held only by one gender. Right. However, sometimes that bleeds over, and I see this on Twitter, where I hear the narrative of, you know, men shouldn't have a voice in this. Uh, but I, I don't agree with that. I mean, we've, we've never done that with any other kind of uh, political issue. If it's the Americans with Disabilities Act, we don't only let the disabled uh, folks, you know, set policy. We've always voted as an entire people on every issue. So as as bad as it may sound, you know, men will vote on the issue of abortion, at least in local and state elections uh, to to elect legislators who will do what they their will as to abortion. And, and I think you know, there should be a difference no. between what you believe personally and what you believe as a part of the society. That's what that's what that's what the, that's what the, the southern slave owners used to say. But it, it, that argument didn't really hold water in those days. So. No, but, you know, you, you can't you can't compare me to this. You yes, know, you can. Yes, you can. You no, can no. Because if I, I I tell you, for example, religious people, all religious people don't believe in abortion. But that's a, their choice because they believe in. But when they live in a society and they understand that this is what society wants, they it's not going to affect them directly because they're not going to be involved in that kind but you talk about every religious person is against she was a reverend and uh for you know so and that was i think the better question is like how do you, well, you no, I, I don't i don't i don't agree that i know we don't want to get into abortion um but if you can show me scientific evidence that a fetus that could legally be aborted was not a human life then I'd say yeah, you're you're onto something. Like if you could show me this is the slave well, owner. Like well, the slave owners could prove that it actually that slaves actually weren't hu- humans, and maybe maybe they'd have a point. But science, this is what's terrible about this issue. Science is not the friend of the pro-choice movement. Like liberals are very not. They're they're like follow the science, follow the science. But I mean, Danny knows he just recently had a baby. You you start seeing a four month old fetus, you know, uh, sucking its thumb with the hiccups. You're like, what? Oh, you're, what's that? That's not alive. Well, that's my point. If you believe right. in, like, in religion, religious people in religion or religion, life no, what, is what I'm saying is that at some point, the burden of proof is on the other side to tell us why it's not alive. Well, I think, uh, yeah, the, te- the point about technology, I think, is right that uh, if the magic word or the test is viability, I mean, technology is only going to make viability earlier and earlier. And that's going to make it harder for pro-choice folks because viability is the ability of the fetus to live outside the womb. And technology allows us to do that virtually, it seems, anytime now. So uh, and you look, I I agree that the debate does come down to the issue of um, really it could be boiled down to, you know, I I think that the uh, pro-lifers claim that the life begins at conception and even if the pro-choice movement believes that, the response is essentially, yeah, but still, 
women have a right to privacy. So it's these two competing interests that no one's ever going to, they're never, the twain shall never meet. Uh, they'll never agree. So, uh, but, so but that's I think, why I, I think this it's is an enduring debate. If, if uh, kind of like what Norm said, if science proves, and it's, I think it is, that it's the moment it's, it becomes alive, you know, you will have to make that argument. You will have to be like, okay, it's alive, but it's my choice, even if it's alive, but admit that it's alive. But anyway, I think, I think that on the privacy issue, obviously women have to be, they're, they're the ones dealing with it. And I think there's very compelling argument that men should be very humble about telling women how oh, that yes. affects them. On yeah. the issue of whether or not the fetus is alive and worthy of protection, that I don't think women have any um, uh, insight into. And B, I'm afraid women, that you could make the argument that that a, that a, that a, that a woman who is going to be seriously impacted personally is not the best person to to decide that because she might be too close to it. She might like. There's a reason. I mean, except obviously, if, if, huh? if there's there's other options. If she's if she's going to. I think society. You can make the point that, and and I keep coming to this, even though I don't really. I don't know how I feel about it, but that when a human life. It hits the moment where we think it should be protected under the law is an issue which a democracy, a, a people living in a democracy might decide for themselves in a democratic way. Other nations in Europe, like Ireland, voted on it. Ireland voted to, to legalize abortion. Does Justice Blackman have some superior expertise on this issue than the wisdom of the democratic people or state by state wisdom communities. It's not, I mean, I I've been, I full disclosure, I've had abortions and I, and I, you know, oh, and, know. Even as, and even as recently as um, our last child, when my, my wife was getting older, we had amniocentesis and my wife was like, well, you know, I, if, if this baby is um, has an extra chromosome or something, I don't, my wife said, I don't think I'm going to abort her. I think I want to have it. And I'm like, what are you crazy? We're not going to raise a, you know, a, we, we can't undertake that kind of burden at this point in our lives. I'm not proud of telling you these things. I'm just, just telling you the truth about, you know, what my attitude was. But as I'm saying it, I mean, isn't, isn't, I'm making my own point. It's very selfish, right? It's like, I'm saying these, all these things because of the impact it's going to have on me. Mm-hmm. And it's very, and, and, and so of course I'm going to say, Oh, that, that fetus, just a fetus. Like, because I don't want to go through that for the rest of my life. I don't want to be waiting hand on foot on, on a child that needs. So am I really the person to decide whether this fetus is alive or not? I'm not speaking for the fetus. I'm speaking for what's easiest for me. And people who, people who pretend that's not the case, you know, they're not being honest about human nature, in my opinion. So anyway, that's all. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's take uh, our next uh, case. Then, uh, Norm, you have recommendation or you have... Uh... No, the gun case. You want to talk about the gun case. Which one? Rittenhouse? Yeah. I mean, we can talk about Kyle Rittenhouse because, uh, you know, it seems like a distant memory, but it was only a few weeks ago that he was acquitted. And I have to say, I did believe he would be uh, acquitted. I saw major weaknesses in the prosecution's case early on. But Danny, I don't know look, if you remember, we had a... you a long time ago. And you did. You said it's not walking the park. It's actually hard to prove he's probably not gonna. It's gonna get acquitted. Long time ago. I don't know if you remember that. I I didn't. I didn't remember that because yeah. I will often flip flop as the trial goes on. But you know what happens as these trials actually come out. You you hear the evidence with so much evidence. There's a lot that maybe doesn't get reported, and you start hearing the prosecution's entire case. And in this case, it was 
it was broadcast from gavel to gavel. And uh, you realize the paucity of the uh, government's evidence here. And really, their entire theory was that he shouldn't have been out there. He shouldn't have had a gun. Uh, and therefore, you know, all the shootings that happened thereafter were criminal. And that may be morally correct, but it simply didn't make him a murderer under Wisconsin law, especially because Wisconsin requires the state to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. And uh, there was video evidence essentially of him being chased and uh, chased in the first shooting of Rosenbaum and then chased in the second set of shootings. Uh, and uh, I mean, I thought the odds were in his favor, but of course, you know, when the, when the verdict's being read, I never know for sure. Uh, but bottom line, I mean, I was not that surprised ultimately that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted on all counts. Well, you know, there was a lot of people saying, um, uh, well, if Rittenhouse had been black, you know, X, Y, Z. And um, whenever I hear that argument, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure if, there's, if, if they're not just saying, well, you know, black people are treated unfairly. And so therefore we want to see white people treated unfairly. Um, but I, I, I think there's, there's some truth to that. But on the flip side, what I'm getting at is uh, what if there hadn't been video evidence what if Rittenhouse didn't have the video evidence to show what actually happened to him? Are we, are we at an age now where, where we might have seen a political prosecution here? The, a guy gets uh, indicted. We didn't even didn't even fit the, the the statute, and he has no evidence to show that they chased him in there, and he shoots, and uh, you know the, the 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 public must be satisfied. And he all of a sudden he's in, in jail, right? It, I, that's what I think was, I mean, we, yeah, if he had been black, it's interesting to think about what happened. I know that the the guy who was at the door with uh, Brianna Taylor was black and he shot the cops and he eventually, he lived to tell about it and he eventually, the charges were dropped against him. So I can think of an example where a black guy was treated fairly, but I'm sure the odds, the statistics show that um, it's worse to be black in these situations than white. Not as bad as people would say it is, but it's definitely got to be worse. Nevertheless, there's another issue out here now, which is the political pressure on trials, right? That, yeah, that's what I, I mean, like I, the first thing the judge said is like, don't be in, uh, you know, influenced by this president or the last president. I think yeah. I never heard that let, in the let, let Danny answer, let Danny answer, go ahead. Uh, I think you make a good point. You know, when video first started coming on the scene, I started noticing it mostly first in my juvenile cases because Juveniles, you know, they video, they had tech and they would video each other doing stupid things. Uh, and the one thing I thought that that has proven to be true, I think, is that video obviously would be good for the truth. I mean, it gives you a certainty uh, on the whole. It's worse for defendants normally than it is for the police. Why? Because police know they're recording. Uh, they act accordingly. Defendants don't always know that. Uh, but on the whole, I think it generally benefits law enforcement. But uh, the other truth that I've learned is that with video evidence, I thought there would be no more. And this I was wrong about. I thought there would be no more disputes. What is there to dispute anymore? It's all on video. And what you find is that even if you have it from 10 different angles, people see what they want to see. They still dispute. Uh, everybody saw the same video evidence in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. And everybody was on complete different sides of yeah. where that where that video evidence went uh, to them. You know, being when Rittenhouse was chased by someone with a handgun, 
that guy was trying to rescue everyone else because there was an active shooter. Um, you know, you saw, and I, this is the moment where I thought uh, the prosecution had lost it. During the closing, the prosecution described Joseph Rosenbaum, who was the first person that Rittenhouse shot, as a little guy whose bark was worse than his bite, essentially saying to the jury, there's nothing threatening about this guy. Meanwhile, they've watched hours of this guy pushing a burning dumpster during a riot, telling people he's going to kill them, trying to fight people, and finally chasing uh, Kyle Rittenhouse uh, and uh, throwing a bag at him, a bag that he had gotten when he was released from the mental hospital that day, which I don't believe the jury learned about that. But, you know, if you lose credibility with the jury, it's over. And I think the prosecution lost credibility with the jury when they pointed to Joseph Rosenbaum and said, ah, he's harmless. Think about the, a lot, some of these jurors had to come from the suburbs where they don't see a lot of Joseph Rosenbaums. You know, I mean, it, it, anyone, most people don't deal with a Joseph Rosenbaum in their day-to-day life. And I think when the prosecution was arguing that Kyle Rittenhouse was, you know, out of line, was out of line even imagining that Rosenbaum was a threat, I think they, I think he kind of uh, lost the jury there. But there were a lot of moments like that in the Rittenhouse trial. And I think it just wasn't, it was too incongruous for this jury. Then the prosecutor actually said, well, listen, sometimes you have to take a beating like <laughs> that. That uh, I'm sorry, Noam, that was the other moment. And that was on rebuttal. And rebuttal is the, the state's opportunity to really tee off because it's the last, last final word. That's when they usually bring the fire and brimstone. But when he said that, knowing that that was going to be among the last things the jury heard, I thought that was a major misstep because Sometimes you have to take a beating. First of all, that is not a correct statement of the law. I might have objected because there's nowhere in self-defense law that requires you to take a beating. Now, imagine that. I, th- I, I, I mean, it was laughable. So his theory is that when you're getting beaten up and you have a firearm, you should sit there. Oh, ooh, this hurt. God, this is a terrible beating. But it's not enough that I should use a firearm yet. I, I, it's, these guys are mostly kidding around. They're harmless. Uh, there's ne- that's never been the case in self-defense law that you need to take a beating and evaluate it mid-beating. Again, another moment that for me uh, showed that the prosecution actually, and I wrote a whole column about this. I think the, the untold story of the Rittenhouse case is the idea of sunk costs of prosecutors who make a decision, what, probably two years ago or a year plus ago to prosecute. And, uh, and they never look back. They never reevaluate as they get more and more evidence. By the time this case came to trial, you would think that a prosecutor might just say, gosh, you know, I know we thought this was bad at the beginning, but there were reports that he was a white supremacist and he was an active shooter. And none of that is true. Why go forward with it? I mean, an acquittal on uh, across the board. They obviously didn't have the they didn't have the, the, the case. So I just as a defense attorney, the concern I have is that prosecutors don't always reevaluate. Why are we here? You know, do we still have a case? And we do we still feel as strongly about this case as we did at the beginning? And instead, I think this was a case of egos and the idea that, hey, we're going to be famous. And I know they would never say that was why. But uh, but I think, look, prosecutors are ego driven. It's a it's a job for people who like glory. They don't get paid a lot. Uh, they uh, you know, so they're in it for something. Some of them are in it for the, you know, the uh, nobility of it. Some are in it for the glory. I don't know. So my, fa- my father was a big fan of the David Lean movie, The Bridge Over the River Quiet. Did you ever see it? Yep. 
And that's kind of what you're describing. These, these prisoners of war who were building the bridge for the Japanese and the guy and they get so involved. But Alec Guinness, whoever gets so involved in the project, he tries to actually protect it, even though it's, it stands for everything he's, he's against. You get you just right. get caught up in it. Right. And right. I think that's a real that's a real thing. It, it happens everywhere. What's the next case? Hatem? Uh, well, the last one, I guess, um, Ahmed uh, Albrecht. Yeah. Well, before, Arbery. Before, before Arbery, because it just because uh, it, it's related to this. So I think the I think the Rittenhouse case was a political prosecution. I think we're even under realizing what actually was going on there, because most of the evidence they had all the video at the top. I mean, they they, they tried to put this guy in jail for the rest of his life and they knew he hadn't done his. Similarly, with this cop, I forget her name, who um, pulled the gun, the trigger on the gun. Kim Potter. The taser, Kim Potter. Kim Potter. Um, this seems to me, again, another pol- they're trying to put this woman in jail for the rest of her life. They know that this was a mistake. And this is this is a, this. These are these are very disturbing things to me. Yeah, the Kim, the Kim Potter case is another case. The exam, an example of at the outset uh, early on, I thought, well, she's going to be convicted of something. But now that the case has come to trial and the evidence is coming out, you're seeing video evidence of her before, during and after. I now think there's a strong chance she'll be acquitted. And the reason for that is I looked up the uh, Minnesota jury instructions on recklessness and recklessness requires the conscious creation of an unjustifiable risk. It could almost be said that the prosecution has conceded that she didn't intentionally uh, uh, hurt or kill, well, maybe hurt in the sense of using a taser, but didn't intend to kill. I think at the end, the defense might be able to simply argue, where's the conscious creation of the risk? You hear in the video her say, oh, bleep, I shot him. Oh, I thought I had my taser. So we know, and it's essentially conceded, that she didn't do it intentionally. Now, if they can meld that with consciousness creation uh, of risk, then I think she's got a shot at an acquittal. That and I think, again, the prosecution is focusing on just essentially sliming her uh, by showing repeated videos of his lifeless body and spark of life testimony with all his family. None of those go to the central issue, which is what was in her mind at the moment she drew that firearm? And secondly, is what was in her mind criminal? We know it's an accident. We know it was maybe really stupid, but was it criminal? And if it requires a conscious creation of an unjustifiable risk, I don't know. The word conscious, I don't know that it could be said that she consciously created a risk. Um, What is the the theory of punishment that would want us to to punish this woman if it was a mistake? Is is it a deterrent? Like you could prevent somebody from making a dumb mistake like that again by... By punishing it, or do you think there was an evil intention? Like, what do what are we doing? It's essentially a theory. Well, you bring up a good point. It's essentially a theory of strict liability, which in the law is a, the idea that somebody is guilty of something as long as the the facts that the fact that they did it is known. You don't care about what their intent was, and we do have strict liability crimes. Strangely enough, we have strict liability crimes, and most of them are the ones that you have probably dealt with. Speeding, for example. Is, is not a crime that requires intent. Why? Because administratively, it would be a disaster if you had to prove intent that somebody sped every time. So we as a society say, well, we'll dispense with that requirement because we just don't want to, we don't want to deal with having to prove intent. We'll never, we'll never successfully prosecute anyone for speeding. So that's, that's an interesting analogy there. So I could see a strict liability analogy saying that the, the state essentially is the company 
and these various uh, uh, actions by the police or whatever it is, these, these are their product in a sense. And we see it and you can, you can look. So for instance, in the Minnesota case with Chauvin, we, we look at the manual and the training and, and all the, all the, the terrible things the cops were, were put out on the street with, which my goodness, if the, if the, if the Minnesota manual said, don't put your knee on a person's neck, then, then uh, similarly with the Arbery case, um, you have two things there. You have the, the cop enlisted these guys, like, you know, text message this guy, if you, if he shows up again, number one, number yep. two, the fact that they repealed the the Georgia uh, uh, um, citizens arrest law in an honorary way to, to honor Arbery to me implied very much that they be, that even the, that Georgia believed that this law somehow led to this case, which to me says, well, if you believe the law led to the case, then maybe it's not totally fair to the dumb schmuck, <laughs> you know, like if you have to change the law, so maybe. And 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 in in a number and a similar in this Kim Potter case, like well, if the cops don't have a foolproof way of not pulling the wrong gun, well maybe the state strict liability should be held accountable. That get your shit together, state, because your product is hurting people. We don't need to punish another dumb. I don't mean dumb in that sense, but you know, a vessel who's just essentially a victim in a certain way of a system here, which is not very wise and and hasn't thought things through. Or maybe nobody's that wise, and we'll have to learn from these mistakes, the trial and error, to to re- to reevaluate and change things. But these people are going to go to jail for the rest of their lives, or 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 some people want them in jail for the rest of their lives. None of it sits right with me. I got to tell you, it just doesn't. These people, I mean, uh, uh, these people all that we're talking about, these are not people who woke up and say, "I want to kill somebody. I, I want to do some evil today. I want to," you know. Right. I, that's not what we're describing here. Um, Danny, I have. Uh... One, one more question, and then, because I know it's a little past the time. By the way, we're going to have the recap, and Danny's going to be a part of it. He's going to do the law and order recap of 2021 for us. Yay. Uh, we'll talk I'm about excited. It. Yeah, it's going to be on Tuesday, uh, the 27th, but we're going to, I'm going to send you emails and discuss and announce it later. But I have a qu- two questions. Uh, one is a question, one is more like a fantasy. The question is, I watch all these uh, court cases and all this. Why does not one lawyer or, or prosecutor have the same charisma like you? Like, why are they all like just boring? Like, except if it's a movie, you like fall asleep. But I feel like if you are the lawyer, the way you speak, the way you have that energy, like it will be like, it, you know, so I guess, you know, people should hire you. But, you know, uh, what, what, a serious question. Why, why are these so boring? Is it because you're on TV a lot? So you're like more of like have that charisma thing. But I think that was way before that. I think, yeah, I mean, I probably have developed announcer voice from doing TV, but uh, I have to tell you, I'm a lot more muted in court. And I think, uh, I think it's just the uh, solemnity of the, of the building and the courtroom. Uh, But I do try to, I do try to be interesting. I think, uh, you know, my philosophy is that everybody wants to be uh, entertained on some level. They don't want to be bored. So I try to be interesting, but, but not too shouty. Um, but, uh, I think because the lawyers are marshalling so many facts and they have so many organizational issues when you're on trial. And that's the part I hate about trial. It's but just that fear of like question the way you, you know, right, right. I don't know. Well, the, the fear. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I hope I'm uh, dynamic during trial, but I think trial's just a, a different environment. And, uh, with, you know, with these long trials and with all this evidence and exhibits, I, I, it, 
tends to get boring no matter how interesting you try to make it. They, they, they're still boring. And my, my, my last fantasy is I want to see like a, a big case where Norm is the lawyer of that. Oh, and the, I'd love that. And at the judge, uh, at the end of the, the judge will be, and that will be the first case in history where the judge give the guy uh, in that he's not guilty and jail Norm. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm much more likely to be a defendant. <laughs> no, I think, no, and, and that's another thing. As much as like he makes... Uh, no, uh, great points. And a lot of times you'll be, I understand uh, when we outside, we don't have that pressure so we can come up with better questions and better scenarios, but that's your job. Like how, how can you not think, like we said so many things in this podcast that we'd be wondering why they can do it, why they can, why they can think that way or question this or, you know, like, like I don't get it. Like it's just like, um, are people getting their money worth out there with these lawyers? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. All I can, after all this time, I think it's really just, it's less a science and more an art because everybody's got their own, their own take on how to do it. And uh, who knows who's right. You can't measure it by acquittals because sometimes that's just luck of the draw. I once tried a case with a guy who just had his, his uh, a co-defendant, his, his client just had better facts. This guy had never tried a criminal case. He slept in his truck on during lunch. He, you know, but somehow he got an acquittal just because the facts were better for his client than mine, and mine got convicted. And I love oh, this guy. Major really cases like law. this, you know, you need to yeah. know, you need to be, you need to take acting lessons, you need to be like entertaining, like you said. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's my theory. I mean, some some folks take a different approach, but uh, you know, it's everybody's different. Uh, Noam, you have anything in your mind before we go? No, I, I, I don't. I, I just just want to reiterate I, as I'm thinking about this, it, just it's a terrifying thing. And I had a friend who was also um, at the other end of the state power. He, he, he didn't end up uh, he didn't do anything wrong and he ended up, you know, not being punished, but went through a terrible traumatic, you know, six months to a year of, of dealing with it. Um, and I, I just it just we should all really stop and think about it. Just how how the, the awe in the, the awesome power of the state if they, if oh. they want to put you in their crosshairs you know and really like p- places like the innocence project they don't get enough attention there's a lot of people too many people that fi- that find themselves in jail what happened to your project with innocent project we, we've done charity events for them but um i think you can do uh, even you know because you have a good uh because no, I, I, mean, I love we do charity events for them we have done not since COVID and, and the money helps them get innocent people out of prison. But I don't know that, that it, that the money helps um, change the general mentality that winds up with innocent people in prison. And I don't, I don't know how we do that. Uh, But it's just something to think about. This, you know, we we all want to see criminals punished and we all afraid of crime, especially violent crime. So it's just, you know, I'm not, I don't really have a point. Just these are weighty issues. That's all. It's okay. You never do. Um, <laughs> Danny, what's, what's, what, what's in your mind before we end? Oh, look, uh, just, I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be back on the show. It's been a while and I'm glad to see you folks. And I'm, I am looking forward to the, my first time back in the back bar area of that, uh, Olive Hey, do you want to go Monday? Comedy cellar. You want to go Monday and watch Norm's band? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, n- well, you're not at, not at Cafe Juan anymore. You're up at Olive Tree. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay. Don't put, yeah, don't put pressure on him. He's got uh, two babies at home now. So no, we've been planning to call, to hang out there together for a while now. I'll yeah, I'd you. love that. Well, yeah, I I'm I'm out of I'm out of the circuit for at least a at least a month or two. Uh, but when I get back in, I'm totally up for it. Are you yeah. boosted? Oh yeah, yeah, vaxxed and boosted. Yep. Totally. I got my booster yesterday. That's why I look like this. I took well, mine. In, it was rough. I took mine in August. Oh, Norm is just like. Wow. Uh, He's such a Jew. Cutting He's like the first one in line before the old booster. Hey, yeah. At the Pfizer lab. <laughs> to, to be honest, you know, I, I, I take my, I've decided to take my cues strictly from Israel. Uh, I'm figuring their, their Jewish doctors are, are as, as smart as our <laughs> Jewish doctors. But, you know, there's so much, it seems to be, and I'm not, a, I don't think it's a conspiracy, but there seems to be so much political, uh, uh, um, and, I don't know what political weight on our decisions in this country. So for instance, Biden said correctly, we're going to get everybody boosted. And then all of a sudden it seemed like the FDA didn't like that. And they're like, not so fast. And then we're all going to only going to boost these people. And, that. and after like four months later, it's like, yeah, you know what? We need everybody to get boosted. All, all that time wasted where Israel said, everybody needs to get boosted. We have the data. And I said, well, that's good enough for me. Like, I, do I really think the CDC and the FDA are superior to, no, they're not because the Israelis are smart and they're streamlined and they're able to just decide and do. So that's yeah, why I yeah. took it. I just, I just took the booster. I think now, that's good. And that last me. part will be edited off the podcast. Danny, <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you want to share your information where people can find you. And if you have a major case, if you kill somebody, call Danny, especially if it's in the media, he have charisma is going to get you out. Uh, at Savalas Law on Twitter. And of course, check out NBC uh, News' new streaming channel, NBC News Now. I've uh, done a little anchoring there even in the last uh, a month or so. And it's, uh, it's very exciting stuff. And of course, MSNBC, whenever you can. And Norm Dorman, anything? Nothing. All right. Comedy Cellar and uh, Mondays at the All Street Watch on Play. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Pleasure Bye. to have you, Danny. Bye. Great Congratulations. to see you as usual. Bye. Bye.